Good morning, Keto. Good afternoon, Lagos. And good evening, Kolkata from Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue senior editor Valentina Calvi to discuss a potential nuclear deal in Iran and a major trial in Guatemala. It's all coming up. Morning, Val. How are you? Hi, Ethan. All good. How are you? I'm doing great. Lovely to have you here. So uh, for this first one, some people will love it. Others are going to hate it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But for non-diplomats like us, we are still huge diplomacy nerds. Uh, (laughs) So this is a really fascinating story to watch. Yeah, we're talking about the negotiations between the U.S. and Iran for a new nuclear deal. And, you know, like you said, some people hate the deal, other people love it. But there's so much distance between the two sides and the issue is so intractable that it's kind of the final boss of diplomacy, like at the, at the end of the video game. <laughs> like, yeah, Mortal Kombat style. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but the story here is that American and Iranian officials have been conducting secret negotiations in Oman to construct a limited deal, and I mean, like, really, really limited deal, um, and an informal one um, that would constrain Iran's ability to build a bomb in the short term while lifting a handful of uh, U.S. sanctions. So to be clear, this is more of a political ceasefire, uh, as one Iranian official put it, and it's not really a return to the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or anything close for that matter. Yeah, I think I think uh, informal is the right word. I heard that it was even mm-hmm. uh, a, a verbal agreement. But but what does yeah. the deal, if if it does come to fruition, what would the deal do? So according to a bunch of officials from the US, Iran, and Israel, this deal would require Iran to stop enriching uranium past 60% and note that a nuclear weapon requires at least 90% enrichment. Um, It would stop uh, attacking US contractors operating in the Middle East, uh, release also a handful of US prisoners in Iran, and then limit Iranian arms sales to Russia, uh, namely its sales of ballistic missiles to to Moscow. Uh, And in exchange, the U.S. will promise to not issue any additional sanctions, um, you know, refrain from seizing Iranian oil tankers, as has been the case lately. Um, And it won't file any resolutions against Iran at the U.N. or the International Atomic Energy Agency. As long as Iran, you know, remains in compliance with the limits that we discussed before. Uh, well, Val, you said this is nowhere near the the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, aka we'll stick with. Let's just go to JCPOA. Yeah, uh, <laughs> much quicker. What did what did that deal entail? Yeah, so just a quick refresher on that, so everyone listening knows what we're talking about. The JCPOA was a deal that was worked out between the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. So we're talking Russia, China, the US, UK, and France, plus Germany. So that's why they're called the P5 plus one. Um, during the later years of the Obama administration. And these negotiations were grueling. We're talking like two years of nonstop talks. Well, in, in Geneva and Vienna, though, so not too bad, I guess. No. Have you ever had Viennese coffee? It's it's really no. delicious. Yeah. So I'm Noted. sure they were Noted. fine. Um, but at the end of it, the parties, you know, reached this agreement, this behemoth agreement. Um, you know, it was a flawed agreement, of course, as all deals of these magnitude are. But it did a few really important 
important things. Uh, it eliminated all of Iran's most advanced centrifuge, um, which is, you know, those spinning contraptions that enrich uranium. Um, and it cut Iran's stockpile of low rich uranium by 98%, basically wiped it all out, um, from 7,000 kilograms to 300 kilograms. Uh, and then it also eliminated all of its medium-enriched uranium and capped the enrichment at just 3.85%. So 3.87, sorry, uh, which is, you know, a long way from that 90% you want from a for an atomic bomb. But on the other hand, critics of the deal, and there were a lot of them, uh, pointed out that these restrictions were only in place for 15 years. After that 15-year mark, the deal would, you know, basically expire. Uh, and the deal did nothing to limit Iran's ballistic missile program and its funding to organizations such as Hezbollah and Hamas. So the deal proponents admitted that it all was true, like it was on the table, it wasn't some secret. But they basically countered that point by pointing out that the inspectors from the Ato International Atomic Agency could continue to monitor Iran's behavior even after that 15-year mark. So there was, you know, something that would go beyond that 15-year mm. mark. But it, but it was the critics that kind of won the day, right? Well, I mean, yes, because ultimately in 2018, the Trump administration, administration pulled out of the deal, uh, despite the fact that, you know, repeated certifications um, proved that Iran was in compliance. Uh, and began what it called a maximum pressure sanctions campaign, the Trump administration, that is. Um, but, you know, President Trump wasn't the only high-profile critic of the deal. You had Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Even He even addressed a joint session of Congress about it while Obama was still president, right. which, you know, a pretty brazen move. Um, but returning to that maximum sanctions program, um, you know, if the goal of Trump's uh, pressure campaign was to kneecap Iran's nuclear program, then it's been a failure, like a massive failure. In fact, as recently as March, we heard reports that Iran had en enriched uranium to 83%, which, you know, much closer to that 90. Um, and the closer Iran gets that 90 threshold, the more worried Israel will be. And, you know, for good reason, Iran and Israel have a very bad relationship. And Iran has, you know, repeatedly even promised to wipe the whole country off the map. So, you know, the closer they get, the more likely it is that Israel will maybe conduct a preemptive strike uh, against Iranian nuclear facilities. And just, you know, the closer we get to an actual uh, confrontation between those two countries. Yeah. I mean, Val, if I, if I could state my position here. Uh, yeah, of course. For all the reasons you listed, I never saw the JCPOA as a perfect deal. I don't think anyone ever did. But to me, the choice was always uh, kind of a binary one. You know, either you negotiate and you keep negotiating as best you can for as long as you can, or you go to war. Yeah. Like Israel says it could do. And that doesn't seem like a particularly tough choice to me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's a stance that many of us share. The opponents of the theory would say two things. One, they'd say that the goal of the sanctions campaign was to always make life more difficult and so difficult, in fact, for the Iranian people that they would eventually rise up against their government. And two, they'd say that the more time you spend negotiating with Iran, 
who lots of people don't see as a trustworthy partner anyways, the more time they have to build up their defenses and the more difficult it will become to fall back on that, you know, plan B plan, you know, to preemptively strike um, uh, option that so many in Israel and the US have toyed with. And, you know, we recently started hearing reports about an Iranian bunker so deep that even the most powerful U.S. bombs couldn't reach it. Yeah, both good points. Both good points. I would counter with one, uh, the failure of the protest last year, which by all accounts were some of the biggest protests since the regime mm-hmm. came to power in 1979. Yeah. That suggests that toppling the regime is probably a bad bet. And two, I would yeah. say that going to war with Iran would never be easy no matter when it was done and it would always potentially risk creating a wider regional or god i mean god even a global conflict yeah absolutely uh, those are those are two great points um so i think what we're learning here in the end that is that you know there's no easy way to solve this problem all of the options available are pretty miserable so it's about picking the least bad one <laughs> Today's show is sponsored by Babbel. Going on vacation is great, but exploring the world like a local is even better. And not speaking the language is no longer an excuse. Babbel offers 10-minute lessons designed by real language experts focused on conversational skills in 14 languages so you can learn a language in three weeks and board your next flight abroad with confidence. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. Next up, Val, we're back to a theme that we've been watching pretty closely in recent years. Yes, indeed. We're looking at the state of democracy in Latin America, and specifically this time we're looking at Guatemala. So the story here is that one of Guatemalan's most prominent journalists slash publishers, a man named José Rubén Zamora, has been sentenced to six years in prison on charges that he laundered about 40,000-ish um, US dollars in 2022 and forced a prominent banker to pay steep advertising costs in order to avoid an unflattering uh, campaign and coverage. So, Ethan, I suppose this is where you'll ask me to tell you a bit more about Mr. Zamora. <laughs> this is only your third time on. You're a quick learner, Val. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I like to come prepared to, to my classes. <laughs> um, so, Zamora is the founder of a newspaper called El Periódico, uh, which he began publishing in 1996, shortly after the end of a four decade long civil war. Um, and quickly, you know, he became very renowned for its coverage uh, of corruption in Guatemala. And that, understandably, um, made him a lot of enemies over the years. So in 2002, after the paper published an article about then-president Alfonso Portillo uh, and his links to organized crime, Portillo sent uh, government auditors to the El Periódicos and their offices um, to effectively shut down the paper for more than a month. Uh, And then shortly after that, Zamora and his family were held hostage in their home and warned not to 
quote unquote bother the people above. So I mean, Zamara's been through it all. He's had grenades thrown into his car. He's been burned in effigy. He's been beaten, and in one case, he was knocked unconscious while eating dinner with friends and kidnapped, stripped naked, left on the side of the road, twenty-five kilometers from where he was dining. Wow. So he's really, really been through it. And in every instance, it's been shortly after his paper published something about corruption. So you know, the coincidences are stacking up. Yeah. Uh, well. What about this case? What does it seem like? It's basically the same story all over again. Zamora's arrest last July came shortly after the publish uh, the, his paper published stories uncovering corruption in government contracts, and the paper came under so much political and financial strain that it was actually forced to shut down in May of this year. And Val, what does this tell us about Guatemala? I mean, like I said, this is kind of a, a theme that we've been tracking. But what what about Guatemala specifically? Well, I always start with the disclaimers that Zamora could very well be guilty of what he's been charged with. It, it, it is a possibility amongst many. Still, you know, given the environment for dissidents in Guatemala at the moment and Zamora's history, it's not hard to imagine that these charges are kind of totally made up. Uh, you know, since 2021, almost two dozen journalists have fled the country, along with three dozen judges, you know, anti-corruption prosecutors. There has been, you know, hundreds of document cases uh, of harassment and physical violence against journalists in recent years. Um, and unlike some other Latin American countries, uh, Guatemala doesn't have a strongman leader. It looks like a real democracy and even have you know, they have elections coming up on Sunday, on the 25th of June. Um, so the facade, like, it looks compelling. Uh, and then, you know, we have civil society experts saying that the country is no less authoritarian anyways. And with the arrest of Zamora, it's hard to see that situation improving anytime soon. Mm. Wow. Elections on Sunday, you said. So this will be one to watch very yeah. closely. Thanks, Val. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. The foreign ministers of Southeast Asia will meet in Thailand today to prepare to quote fully re-engage Myanmar at the leaders level, according to the Thai foreign ministry. Myanmar was expelled from ASEAN, the regional bloc, after a military coup in 2021. Officials are expecting Croatia's accession in January to Europe's free travel zone, the Schengen zone, to drive a record tourism season this summer. The sector already accounts for more than 20% of Croatia's economy. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, as with all things, corruption is a skill. It takes time to learn, to master, to do it without getting caught or getting in trouble. And needless to say, one policeman in Colombia has a long way to go till he gets it right. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see his mistake. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday.